You know how we all have that one friend or that one person that we go to when we're having a specific problem because you know that they are going to have the answer and the experience to help you resolve that problem faster than you could ever do so on your own? Well, that is exactly why I agreed to become the editor of Homestead Living Magazine because I know that I have certain friends like Carolyn Thomas from Homesteading Family that when I am dealing with an issue, I can just pick up the phone and give Carolyn a call. But even though Carolyn and I both know a lot about homesteading, there's things that even neither she nor I know. So I banded together all of my homesteading peers and I'm the editor of Homestead Living Magazine. Now, some of you have already gotten your copy, but for many of you, because it's a brand new magazine that we just launched this past spring, you might not know about it. It is a quarterly digital publication offering the very best insights from the modern homesteading movement. This is a publication that is for homesteaders, written by homesteaders, no staff writers. It's wisdom from the past, advice for today, as well as hope for tomorrow. Not only will you find articles with, of course, how-tos and tutorials covering different aspects of homesteading, but you're also going to find pieces that really go beyond just the practical into the mindset and into how do you actually homestead for the long haul without burning yourself out, how to pace yourself, and how to deal with so many of the different things that come our way when we are homesteading. So go to homesteadliving.com forward slash Melissa to get your edition. Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 416. Today's episode, we are going to be diving into what does it actually mean when you buy meat at the store and it has the label in the USA on it? What does that actually technically mean? Many of you already know this, but a lot of you are going to be very surprised at what the loopholes are and where that meat can actually be raised and shipped in from and still legally have made in the USA on it. We're also going to be diving into talking about regenerative agriculture. Like what does that actually mean, especially in relation to beef production and cattle? I'm really excited for today's guest who is Will Harris from White Oak Pastures. Now, you may have heard of Will and White Oak Pastures because Will was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and that was a fabulous episode. That's how I first found out about White Oak Pastures. But what is really amazing about their story is how they have made a complete 180, and you're going to hear about that in today's episode, as well as a lot of the reasons that our modern agriculture is the way it is right now, but things that you and I can do in order to make a difference within our our own home and with what we are doing, because that's really what we can control. And if everybody does that, then that all adds up together to make bigger change. But it truly starts with us, which as homesteaders, and if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you identify at some level as a homesteader. I think that is 
truly what we embody and is one of my biggest messages. But it's also to share and get the word out there about companies who are doing things ethically, truly, and also putting those ethics above profits. And that is definitely what today's story and episode is all about. And I had the pleasure of going to White Oak Pastures in person to look and see what they're doing, tour their entire place, get to meet Will and his family. And I'm actually going to be back there in March and it is going to be open for their regenerative agriculture conference. So if you have interest in this, would love to see you. It's in Bluffton, Georgia, which is a delightful place. And it's going to be a smaller conference. So there'll be a lot of chance to really get to talk to people and get to interact. So I hope to see you there. We'll have a link beneath this video so that you can go and check that out. Uh, look at what tickets look like and get registered. So without further ado, I am super excited to, for us to get straight into this interview. Well, hey, Jenny and Will, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for us to get to chat again. I obviously had the pleasure of coming to visit y'all in Bluffton and get to see everything up close and personal, which I highly recommend for anybody. If you ever get that chance or going through, definitely worth a visit. You'll want to stay for a while. But I was really excited, one, to see what you guys, all that you were doing. Um, but I really wanted you to come on want to tell a little bit about your story, but also I think a lot of folks, myself included, don't always realize what's actually being done to the meat system as a whole. Um, our food system with export and imports and what they're allowed to do with labeling and what some of that labeling actually means. And so I feel like the more that we can get this word out, then the more people will be empowered to make decisions based on what is actually happening and and not just kind of like a little bit of smoke and mirrors, which is what I kind of feel is where our food industry is at right now, in all honesty. Um, so one, for those who might not be familiar with White Oak Pastures and your guys' story, uh, Will and Jenny, I would love for you guys to share a little bit about that. And then we kind of jump into some of those um, other issues and nuances. <clears throat> okay. I'll start since I'm the oldest and Jenny can go back and patch everything up that I misrepresent. But uh, I am Will Harris. I am the fourth generation of my family to own and operate White Oak Pastures. My great grandfather came here in 1866, ran the farm uh, as a diverse family operation serving the local Bluffton market, followed by his son, my granddad followed by his son, my dad, who took over the farm post-World War II and really transitioned the farm from a very cyclical, local operation into a very linear component in the industrial cattle market. Uh, I took over the farm after I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976 with a degree in animal science. And uh, I ran the farm industrial for 20 years. And then for the last 25 years, I've been converting it to a operation that more resembles what my great grandfather and grandfather did, that did what my father did, what I did for the first half of my career. I am ably assisted by two of my three daughters, Jenny and Jody and their spouses. 
And between the two of them, they have five children who are my grandchildren, who are the sixth generation on the farm. Hi, Debbie. Pretty good. I'll, I'll fill in a couple of holes. So, uh, you know, Dad was being being humble in, in the sense that uh, he took incredible risks in the mid-90s transitioning our farm from the commodity cow-calf operation that it was into, you know, something that was sort of unheard of in the 90s, which was a you know, grass-based, pasture-based, local food system model. Um, when he decided that he wanted to try something new, be it uh, grass-fed beef, uh, he spent the, the early part of that part of his career doing a lot of education. Um, we were really lucky to be well received by a couple of grocery stores. Public Supermarket was our first customer. Uh, and so dad spent a tremendous amount of time uh, educating folks on generally what grass-fed beef was. Uh, and from there, worked up the confidence to build own farm processing plants, um, one for red meat, one for poultry in uh, 2007, and then added on in, in 2010, finished in 11. Uh, and since then, we have been uh, raising livestock, slaughtering them on the farm, butchering them by hand, and then selling them either to a small number of grocery stores that we got in early with, uh, or, or through our online store, uh, which is through our website. We pasture raise tens or have until very recently 10 mm. species of livestock. Uh, but to generalize it, cattle, goats, sheep, hogs, and, uh, and poultry. And, uh, you know, that from a production perspective gives us, uh, a lot of opportunity on pasture to, to, you know, allow all of those species to kind of co-graze together. Uh, it gives our processing step, staff a lot of opportunity to gain skill with butchering all those different types of livestock. It gives our customers a really great selection of you know, products to support us with, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, buying their meat from us. So yeah. um, that's, that's sort of the nuts and bolts part of, of uh, who we are and what we do. Yeah. Well, and I really want to kind of dive back to the early 90s when you guys made the switch to more to grass fed regenerative practices, because now most folks have heard grass fed. They might not know the exact nuances of, of how that how vastly different, honestly, that is if, if they are not familiar with raising cattle in the industry at all, um, because I, I don't think a lot of people know quite the depths of how larger modern conventional agriculture, especially with in regards to beef, but other species, as you guys were saying too, I don't know that they really understand what truly goes on. Because I think in most people's mind, they see in their head, when you think of cows, they see them on pasture and maybe getting fed some grain or, you know, some, a, a corn patch nearby, but conventional feedlot cows, I don't know that a lot of people really understand the difference there and what a complete difference going grass-fed and regenerative means. I mean, and Will, like, honestly, you guys were the first that were really labeled that way when you were kind of the pioneers as far as getting that out. Yes, there's always been homesteaders and small farms that were raising just for themselves or maybe an extra cow for a neighbor or so who have been doing grass-fed, you know, forever, but are 
larger agriculture food system that most people, when they go to the grocery store to buy their meat, I don't know that a lot of them truly understand that the depths of how different that really is. So I'd love for you to kind of, you know, to dig down into that um, and explain those differences and how, and I think it's really phenomenal myself to that you made that switch because that's a very big switch. It's a completely different farming model. And as you said, Jenny, and, and I think we, we almost briefly went over that, the financial cost to do it, what I'm going to say is the right way or the ethical way, the, the way that's best for the animals and the people who are consuming that and it's what's best for the land. There's a huge cost to make that switch. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that. Well, the the uh, lack of understanding on the part of the consumer is not an accident. You know, the the beef industry uh, portrays beautiful green pastures with a red barn and a handful of cows out grazing on it. That's what all the pictures are, and that's the impression that, that they want to convey. And, and that's the way we wish it was. <clears throat> the fact is that an, an industrial beef feedlot is not a pretty picture. The same way an industrial hog feedlot is not a pretty picture, or an industrial boiler house is not a pretty picture. It involves confinement. It involves limiting the animal's ability to perform instinctive behaviors. You know, cattle, instinctively want to roam and graze. It's hardwired into their system. They, if you watch them, you can tell that's what they want to do, even though they're in a feedlot that's full of mud and manure and whatever else. <clears throat> what Basically, what we have done with our production system is create the opportunity for our animals to express instinctive behavior. Cows want to roam and graze, Chickens want to scratch and peck. Hogs want to root and wallow. And to raise animals and not allow them that opportunity is not humane animal welfare. It's just not. Why don't you talk about sort of how the meat industry got that way post-World War II? You know, get big or get out mentality. Yeah. World War II, as Jenny just pointed out, was the turning point in agriculture in this country. There had been some level of industrialization, commoditization, centralization prior to World War II. But after that event, uh, things changed. You know, the guys that left the farm, gone into the service and learned how to operate internal combustion engines, whether it was tanks or, or whatnot, <clears throat> uh, just, just all sorts of things had changed, and a lot of tools became available. Uh, the uh, explosives uh, development for the war turned out to be uh, that it could be converted into ammoniated fertilizer plants. So for the first time, ammoniated fertilizer was affordable to farmers. It was invented years earlier, but it just wasn't affordable. <clears throat> the, the, the fact that uh, GIs had learned how to drive vehicles and weren't dependent upon mules to plow. We can go on and on about the, 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 the pesticide industry, I think, came from the nerve gas effort from the war. On and on, just many, many correlations of technological uh, advancements that were made for the war effort 
that could be converted to food production. And we did. And my dad was the first, he took over, my dad was born in 1920, took over the farm post-World War II. And he was the first generation of my family to really embrace uh, this, uh, the technology side of agriculture and turned it from a very cyclical business into a very linear business. He took pride in the fact that he knew a lot about raising cattle because he uh, developed a, a business model of just being a cattleman. His dad and his dad had been farmers that raised, just like we do, hogs, cows, sheep, goats, rabbits, whatnot. So a lot of changes. Uh, he uh, became that industrial cattleman, became very good at it, used all the tools, and I used all the tools, hormone implants, uh, self-therapeutic antibiotics, honest forms on the animals, uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides on the crops, on, on and on. Everything was about monoculture. Everything was about uh, very linear, high-level production. Part of the pastures ceased to be a food chain and became a one segment in the beef production chain. Heck of, heck of a chain. That's great. Yeah. And I, I, what I think is, um, what I love about as, as I've gotten to talk to and, and you tell your story is it's really easy for us with hindsight to, to look back at those changes and be like, well, why didn't they see how bad they were? You know, why couldn't they? But at the time and the people that were doing it, it wasn't because they wanted to create the system that we now have in place. Like, I don't think that those people made those choices thinking that purely it was profit. Like, I think that a lot of them thought that they were doing what was right in that time. Yeah, you, you're, you're exactly right. <clears throat> what we're talking about is unintended consequences. All of the technologies that my dad's generation and my generation applied to increase food production, to make food abundant and cheap, were very innocently uh, implemented <clears throat> because we didn't understand the unintended consequences. You didn't, you didn't see it. When you put out, when we put out chemical fertilizer, we didn't see it destroy the microbial population of the soil. It did, but we couldn't see it. You know, 50 years after doing it, or after doing it for 50 years, we can measure and see that the organic matter in the soil is a half of 1% instead of being 5%, one-tenth what it used to be. But those unintended consequences uh, were just not recognizable in the short run. And at some point, I do think that the technology industry became greedy, kind of like the tobacco industry in the 50s and 60s. I think there was a little of that. I think that the uh, understanding uh, that a, uh, a technology that corrected a problem caused another problem, which offered the opportunity to sell another technology that fixed that problem but caused another problem. And that's literally the production chain that, that industrial commodity producers are in. I'll add another point to that, that 
you know, that extreme focus on efficiency is, you know, sort of where we went. So we were benchmarking from the industrial commodity linear production system, benchmarking, benchmarking on efficiency and not quality. And prior to that, the benchmark was quality. And so all of a sudden you were rewarded for hitting a minimum standard at scale as opposed to being the best producer of an item whose produce or wheat or corn or pork or beef or whatever was highly sought out and you know uh you know got a got a premium for it. Um so there was a real metrics change or you know paradigm shift, however you want to say it, uh focus from quality to efficiency. And that efficiency then really shown uh you know, shine a light on scale and scale then led to faceless, soulless corporations, uh, you know, with with little regard to the things that build communities or rebuild soils or rebuild, uh, you know, good, nutritious food. So I think it was it was you're very right. A led to B and B led to C and C led to D. And now looking back, we can we can outline what those A's, B's and C's were. A didn't necessarily lead to B, but you know, through a, a, a path of a twisted path, we got yeah. there regardless. Yeah. We call that commoditization. That that phenomenon she just described, which is very factual, was the commoditization of food. You know, don't, don't you know the effort is not to make it the best it can be. It was the effort to meet the minimum standard so it could go into the system. Yeah. Boy, I see very strong parallels with our modern medical system. Uh, well, I mean, that's a whole nother episode. So we'll save that for another time. <laughs> but one of the things that I see quite often, even to this day, and I'm sure you guys have too at larger scale, is is people are like, well, why is why is grass fed beef so much more? Like I'll have, you know, we've got local farmers who are like, hey, we've got half a grass fed beef. This is what it is per pound. And you have a lot of people that are like, that is so expensive. And I'm like, that's cheap for grass fed. Grass fed is beef. Like, so, I, but there, it, there is the greater public. I think that they're like, well, you're not buying corn, you're not buying the pesticides, you know, you're not buying all of these things. So why is it the meat cheaper? Not because they're so far removed from actual raising cattle, you know, that they just don't know that. So I, I'd love, I'd love for you guys to to jump in on that. Well, th- thank you for asking that question because it is something that needs to be said out loud. And the fact is, uh, raising food without using the technologies that take cost out of production adds cost back to production. Now, those technologies that take cost out of production actually just move the cost somewhere else and someone else bears it. And I can give you many, many examples of that, but I'm sure you've heard of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico where the chemical, uh, Pesticides and fertilizers have literally stopped a lot of fishing, stopped oystering, you know, damaged the uh, structure of the, the sea life so badly. Well, that's a cost that the chemical companies, pesticide companies, fertilizer companies, farmers won't bear. We all bear it. <clears throat> Species being driven into extinction by the use of pesticides. It's a cost that we all bear. That the, the pesticide company didn't get charged 
X million dollars for driving some species into extinction. That's not the way that works. It produced cheap food and the cost of losing that species borne by society. I can go on and on there. You know, climate change, pollution, microplastics, and everything. on and on and on. Dozens, probably hundreds of examples of costs that cheap food has spun off to society. Yeah, I would even say like supplements. I mean, think of how many people now we are nutritionally less. I mean, our, our food as a whole, you can still eat an apple, but compared to an apple that was raised 100 years ago, the actual nutrients that are in today's apple because of our soil depletion, that's why so many people are actually malnourished. Like you, in the United States, where I would say we have a plethora of food or food-like substances available, you have more people who are malnourished or undernourished, I should say, um, with a lot of just the base micro macronutrients than ever before. So you may be buying cheap beef, but how much are you spending in your supplements or other things? Um, and I, I don't think a lot of times people don't see that those costs that they really mirror and, and, and is a cause of one versus the other, but they have them separated out in their mind and they don't put the two together. Um, but yeah, there is, there is a, a huge cost that we all bear but we all don't get a bear on the profit that the pesticide companies and, and all of them get, unfortunately. And one of the things that I think is really important to talk about, because I know, Will, you had shared that in the when, when you first were kind of pioneering what grass-fed beef is to the market and explaining it to people, um, and you had it in the different grocery stores and whatnot, that it, it, it did start to turn profitable for you guys. Um, but then we had some changes with labeling laws that really started to eat into that. And that I want to make sure we, we touch on that because I think a lot of people think that they are buying quality beef specifically raised in the U.S., not having any idea that that's not what they're actually getting because of the, the label laws. So I'd love for you guys to kind of jump in on that and, and also share how that really changed um, a lot about how you guys pivoted and and started, you know, to, to make some changes in your your business as well. That, that's a very good point. <clears throat> and uh, I started marketing my grass-fed beef in the, uh, let's just say, early 2000s. And it, it, it just became incredibly successful early on because there just weren't many people doing it. And there wasn't a, an importation uh, situation going on that we have today. By 2005, although I don't think it really came into effect, 2006, there was a rule change that allowed big multinational corporations to bring uh, grass-fed beef in from about 20 countries, New Zealand, Australia, Uruguay, others, and label it as product of the USA, even though the cow was born and raised and slaughtered and processed in 20 other countries. And the reasoning behind it is that if value was added in this country, it is a product of the USA. But most of us believe that it's an intentionally deceitful labeling change. Loophole. Loophole. Yeah. Loophole. 
that was uh, put into place by multinational meat companies, successfully put into place by multinational meat companies. And it's been a game changer for uh, us and others. We were fortunate. We started early enough that we were established enough that we have stayed in business. But this change that I just told you about with the product of USA Labeling has taken a lot of really good American grass-fed beef producers out of the business. They just couldn't, they just couldn't make it. I cannot explain to you why what's labeled as grass-fed beef is so cheap when it comes from these other countries. I hadn't been down there to look, but uh, I do know that it wouldn't get the scrutiny. You know, here on our farm, we have cabins. You can spend the night. We have a restaurant. You come eat. And you, it's good food, y'all. You, you, you've been. You, you, we'll, we'll show you anything you want to see. You know, I don't know that you have that opportunity when you buy products from other countries that are labeled product of the USA and sold under a very American-sounding uh, uh, brand. And I'll say that, you know, the real concern, I think, is not necessarily about product quality. You know, we're not trying to rail against imported product being a quality issue. It's the fact that we're moving our food production industry overseas, just like we moved the textile industry and the automotive industry. I can't think of too many other industries that are more important than the food production industry. And if you're a believer in resilience, uh, it's not a very resilient thing to have uh, your your major source of food loaded up on a boat and, you know, 90 days later show up at a port in, you know, to, to be repacked or, or uh, you know, ground up and then sent to a grocery store. That, that doesn't sound very resilient to me. No, not at all. And... Another thing that really gets me, and I'm sure y'all too, is part of me, I, I don't like a lot of regulations because I see a lot of times that those just get abused, but I also see why sometimes regulations come about. And so I feel a little torn when it comes to labeling, because like you said, now we have this loophole. So people think that they're supporting USA raised and they're getting stuff that's raised and that's important to a lot of folks, but they're not, even though that's what they think that they're supporting. So you've got that loophole. And then when it comes to grass fed, because it is newer in as far as larger companies and, and marketing and all of that, you have what is labeled as grass fed, but that doesn't actually mean that it is grass fed and grass finished the whole time. So do you guys like, do you see that in the, the larger that like a lot of the, I'm I know you haven't been down there, Will, but I'm assuming like they could say grass fed. But that actually doesn't even mean that they've been grass-fed the whole time, that they truly are grass-fed. Well, I could, I could go through and pick out a lot of uh, production uh, nuances that uh, to ask the question, is or is it not? The fact is, we just, we just don't know. If they say it's a product of the USA, is raised in Australia or New Zealand or Uruguay, uh, how much... How much else are you going to believe of that? Yeah. No, that's a good point. <laughs> um, We're off to a bad start if, if, that, if, if that's what we establish. 
uh, you know, trust in the consumer with. Credibility ain't high. Yeah, credibility ain't high. And, and here's the other sad thing is that the erosion, uh, or I won't, I won't start out with that, but the uh, the movement of this cheap imported product saturates the market and the demand for what consumers think that they're getting, which then lessens the likelihood that a first-generation American farmer can get started uh, producing products. So we're not only moving our food production system to other countries and the resilience of our ability to feed ourselves to other countries, but we're also, uh, you know, really making it hard for uh, young or older, passionate people who have interest in doing things differently. Uh, you know, the, these labeling laws make that next to impossible because the market's flooded with products that uh, consumers think uh, that's what they want. Yeah. Well, and to your point, to, to the bigger picture, when that happens, how many jobs have been lost because that money is going overseas? Like, yes, you're paying someone to bring it in off the port and to repackage it, but the feed is not being grown by someone that is feeding these animals in the U.S. Like, there's so many jobs that come out of our economy when that is supported and done. And like, I know you guys, when you brought processing back, or I shouldn't say back, but on site, like having gotten to come there and see that, like you guys employ so many local people, which then feeds back into other local businesses. And it just rises the entire community. And so much of that in the past, you know, 60 years has been lost. I mean, I've seen it lost in my community. We no longer have a, a gas, even a gas station um, in my town. Like all of those things have, have lost. And I think sometimes a lot of people want to question like, well, what happened? This is just one of those things that happened, but we don't always correlate those two. Let me tell you what happened. So right now we're sitting in, in my office, which is the old courthouse in the middle of Bluffton, Georgia, which is in the middle of the White Oak Pastures, Clay County, Georgia. Clay County, Georgia was the poorest county in the United States of America in 2020. The poorest county. Uh, we have 150 or 60 employees. We're the largest private employer in the county. And I'm not real proud of what our employees make, but they make way over the county average. And the reason we're able to offer 150 or 60, whatever it is, people higher than average jobs is because we brought this cattle beef production business back to Clay County, Georgia. And that that sort of loss of productivity across the rural America, not just the South, but rural America, is part of that centralization that Jenny referred to earlier, earlier that came from the changes made in the food production industry. Centralized, industrialized commoditized. And it, it, one of the, the, the impacts is impoverishing rural America. Well, you hit the nail on the head, sir. <laughs> but one of the things that I think got me really excited when I read your book, Will, and got to come down there and, and hang out with y'all is 
there is hope because I feel like a lot of people will hear things like this and a, a lot of, and I'm not calling out any one person, but there's a lot of excuses. And it's like, well, that's the way it is. And that's just kind of where we're at. And it is, it is huge, right? I mean, it's all of America. It's these other countries, it's exports, it's big corporations, it's our government. I mean, all of these things. And you and I can't go and fix all of those things. I mean, if, if we could, it, we, we would have done it already. But every single person has their own personal choice on what they decide to do with their own land or where they spend their money, you know, what they choose to support and to educate themselves on what that is that they're truly supporting. Like that is something that we all can take control of and can do. And, and homesteaders are, are totally on, on board with that. But I just love how inspiring what you guys have done. Because, Will, I know you said, I didn't set out to change the world and I can't change the whole world. What I can do is change how things are done at White Oak Pasture. But all of us can do that within our own space and our own community and our own pocketbook. But that has a ripple effect. It does end up changing the world, just not in that big grandiose, let me wave a magic wand and it happens overnight. Well, I, I like to come in on that is I think what you said is exactly right. And I think that if we see change in the food production system, I'm not sure we're going to see it. But if we see change, uh, it's going to be bubbles, not a tsunami. You know, I, I don't think that, uh, I, in fact, I'm convinced that uh, our politicians are not going to do that because the lobbyists, hold too much sway over them. The, the land-grant universities are not going to do it because they get too much money from big food, big ag, big tech. Uh, I can go through many, many, many scenarios of how it's not going to happen because of the, uh, the entrenched industrial food machine. So if it, if it does happen, it's going to be exactly the way you say it, it's by consumers making the choice. Bubbles, not a tsunami. And we, and why the question? We don't expect to, to, to feed the United States of America. We, we can't do that. We can't feed Georgia. But I think that uh, enough con enlightened consumers making the decision to buy food directly from someone whose program they can support doesn't have to be exactly like we do it. Shouldn't be exactly like we do. We've chosen a path. If consumers find a producer that they can support that production system, financially uh, motivate them by, by making the food purchase and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, then it, it might happen. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And there's a lot of people out there that want to, to replicate models like white oak pastures. You know, we host, uh, you know, consumers, uh, but I would say, you know, probably 50% of the people here come here saying, oh, I would love to do something like this uh, with my grandparents' land or with my parents' land or, oh, I'm working so hard to convince my, you know, you fill in the blank with an, uh, you know, stubborn family member to make a transition to something more like this. You know, this is not the perfect model. This model fits 
where we are in Southwest Georgia with our context and our infrastructure and the things that we want to accomplish, but it's not the only model that exists. And, uh, you know, you know pe people need to be empowered uh, to, to make their own version or whatever, you know, whatever it is like white oak pastures. And that's where these small independent food systems, not, not a, not a part of the food system. We were part of the food system a long time ago. Uh, but these, these, uh, resilient little food systems would then have the ability to, to, uh, to prosper and to, you know, to pop up in, you know, one in every state or two in every state or, three in every state and that's where we add uh resilience to our you know to, to our food system as a country yeah no i 100 100 agree and one of the things that i am really excited about which i'd love for you guys to to share is the uh conference that you guys are doing in march because i know that that is is your heart too is to to give people that inspiration and the tools to be able to go wherever they are, make it work for that environment, whatever that looks like, but to be able to cre create these pockets. So I'd love for you to share what's happening in March and where people can go to check out more about that. So uh, we're, we're hard to get to. Bluffton, Georgia, as you know, is not an easy place to get to, but we think it's worth traveling to. Uh, and, and so dad founded a 501c3 called the Center for Agricultural Resilience in the fall of 2021. And he did so because he knew that with all these people wanting to learn how to, uh, how to raise livestock and how to process livestock in the way we were doing it, our ability to train people just was, was going to always be a very small effort. But by founding CFAR, uh, which is the Center for Agricultural Resilience, we opened ourselves up to, you know, grants and uh, financial contributions for from philanthropic people who wanted to see uh, this type of farming grow. And uh, so we have been in existence since the fall of 21 and uh, March the 14th through the 16th, 2024, we'll have our first gathering. We think it'll be pretty small, uh, you know, be rooted in, in downtown Bluffton. Uh, we'll have you as a speaker in addition to several others. Uh, Dad will speak, Trey Cates. Uh, we've got a pretty good lineup, which you can see on uh, CFAR's website, which is thecfar.org, T-H-E-C-F-A-R.org. If you go to events, Rooted in Regeneration will be there. Uh, and we, we hope folks will come out. I don't think that we have a real target audience or, uh, you know, mission for the event. We just want, uh, our first event to be a welcoming one for folks to come together, network, uh, maybe learn something, maybe see something that, that impresses them. We'll have a, uh, you know, several demonstrations going on, uh, but just have some time together, uh, to sort of refill our cups so that we can then return home and and uh and, and pour out for a while you can't you can't refill from an empty cup and we want this to be an event that fills folks as cup build it and they will come yeah build it and they'll come that's <laughs> yeah. a lot whoever said that lied. <laughs> they did but it's a good sound bite <laughs> i build stuff where nobody can <laughs> well i'm gonna argue with you a little bit there will i think people are coming 
Um, but I also think that you have to create that community, which is what you're doing first right now is the community of people who are interested in it to be able to take that back and then build that in their community. So it's kind of that that larger umbrella has to happen first and then you can create those smaller pockets. So I'm I'm super excited. And uh, Will's book, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, if you have not read that yet, you guys, um, I read that book and I've already felt like I was on fire. I mean, I'm a fifth generation homesteader and all that, but I read that book, Will, and it was like, like where the fire got lit and the cup got overflowing, like all at the same time. And so I'm just uh, really excited for other people to, to, I think what I find so fascinating is you had this incredible vision. And I think a lot of people, myself, I'm including myself in that. Sometimes it's hard to dream that big because we don't think it's possible, but you dreamt really big. And I know you took a lot of risks to fulfill that dream and to get there, but because you dreamed that big, it shows other folks, myself included, that you can do what you are doing to some scale, not necessarily opening, you know, the the full USD, the two plants that you guys have, but there's a lot that we can do. And sometimes we just need to see that someone else did it so that we know that it is possible and that we can we can incorporate that into our own path. So I guess I'm just giving y'all a big old mushy thank you. Um <laughs> no problem dreaming big. In fact, that's probably a flaw of his. He dreams too big. Uh, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I I am delighted that he wrote the book because it is such a just a window into the way that he thinks. And, you know, the, the title really fits exactly what, you know, he and we all have been up to over the last 25 years. You know, we, we do have to give a damn because if we don't, uh, you know, we, 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 we won't have much of a food system uh, to, to embrace. So if, if we want choice, we've got to fight for it. And I think that having choices work. I think you agree. Uh, I think, most of the people that, that listen to this will agree. So, um, you know, it, it, it is a special thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, we will have be- beneath the video that when this goes out on the website, we'll link to, to the book, to the conference, uh, to your guys' uh, website. But yet, there's so much that y'all are doing. We'll have to just come back on and talk more about that because I feel like we just scratched the surface on all the things I'd love to, to dig into and to dive into. Um, but so that people can find you and learn more about that. So thank you guys so much for coming on. And I can't wait to see you in person again in March. I'm grateful for your friendship. There have uh, been a lot of people come to and through White Oak Pastures and you are a special one. We really enjoyed having you. Oh, you're just going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Will. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Jenny and Will are a delight. And speaking of companies who practice made in the USA and create heirloom lasting legacy type products, and that is today's sponsor of the podcast, American Blossom Linens. If you have been an old time listener of the podcast, you've heard me talk about them in the past, but American Blossom Linens is a USA, made in the USA, materials sourced in the USA company of heritage quality linens. I got my American Blossom Linen sheet set, I think going on like over two years now, you guys, and I am not kidding. 
I will take the sheets off, leave the bed unmade while they're washing and drying, and then remake up the bed because I literally do not like any other sheets. Like they have spoiled me. However, they are wearing amazing. They are softer than the day I bought them because they actually get softer the more that you use them. But you can't tell, like there's not like where they're starting to wear out. You know how you'll get like those thin spots on a lot of sheets, especially after a couple of years, using them pretty much every day. Um, so I am very thrilled that they are a sponsor again of the podcast and to share them with you because truly buying things that are made to last makes such an impact on our bottom line, but also our, our country and our economy. One of the things I love about American Blossom Linens is their commitment to the support of USA products. So all of the cotton that they use in their sheets, which are 100% cotton, is grown and harvested solely in the United States. The cotton is grown with sustainable and environmental protocols at a higher level found anywhere in the world. And the suppliers of both their yarn and their weaving are members of the U.S. Cotton Trust, and that ensures the integrity of these products. Now, in the past, they were made with 100% organic cotton. And this is where I appreciate companies who are honest and actually act with integrity and are upfront and honest about when things change within their products. So right now, the fiber content is 55% USA cotton and 45% USA organic cotton. So 100% USA. But there was a shortage of domestic organic grown cotton for the 2023 growing season for their West Texas farmers, which is where they get it. And so in order to keep everything harvested in the USA, some of the cotton is not 100% organic, though all of it is grown with sustainable and environmental protocols. And the other great thing is they have sheet sets, they've got blankets, like you're gonna wanna check out the whole product line. The great thing is, is if you use code PIONEERINGTODAY20, you get 20% off your order. So go and check out American Blossom Linens if you are on the hunt for more regenerative and made in the USA products. Again, all of the links that we've talked about today and additional resources can be found in the blog post, which is at mostkenoris.com forward slash 416 because this is episode number 416. Thank you so much for joining me and I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Blessings and mason jars for now, my friends.